bring plates. I want to share a scripture for today. We actually have another scripture. This is what Travis is going to teach about. <laughs> um, we're in the final, we're in the letter, Paul's letters to the Romans in the final chapter, uh, 16, beginning in verse 17. And it says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to keep an eye on those who cause dissensions and offenses in opposition to the teaching you have learned. Avoid them. For such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. For while your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, I want you to be wise in what is good and guileless in what is evil. The God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Good morning. It's great to see all of you here this morning. Uh, two shout-outs before we begin. A bunch of you were here last week when we welcomed Paradise Baptist Church. It was a great Sunday meal, fellowship, great time together. There's some photos around kind of celebrating that. So uh, what a great joy for our church to be able to continue on in that partnership. One photo from a different event I wanted to share with you guys is from yesterday's Musicians Gathering. So uh, this is a total, like, wow, isn't it great to have Megan on our team? She had a vision for this get-together where musicians could come and just play and just worship and kind of uh, bless each other with uh, their musical gifts. So this was yesterday up at Eastside Christian Fellowship. They rented that space to us. And I just, like, was so blown away by this. The talents and the gifts of the people in our community is amazing. So would you just join me in thanking Megan for her leadership around that? Great job, Megan. Well done. Made my heart happy to see that. Would you join me in prayer? Faithful God, we turn now to your word, and uh, your word is alive. It's not my word to share. It is, in fact, the very words that your Holy Spirit gave to the Apostle Paul, and that your church has really been built up around for centuries, for millennia. So it's a humbling thing to be stewarded with this gift, to be entrusted with the stewardship of this gift for this time. For this group of people, God, would you speak this word into all of our hearts, myself included, as you uh, guide us through these closing thoughts from the book of Romans, may we be inspired like that faithful and creative and hearty group of people were in Rome, that early church. May we seek the transformation of the empires around us. For the glory of Christ, may these words equip us for that mighty work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This was fun. Yesterday, a new coffee shop opened up in Kirkland. Not uh, a small event, especially when it's one that I can walk to from my house. So this coffee shop opened up in Totem Lake. Um, By the way, Totem Lake Mall is actually much more like U Village now, if you haven't been there in forever. So, of course, it has to have a cornerstone coffee shop because people need to be caffeinated when they're shopping. This coffee shop opens up. I take my kids there, and it's great. Like, it's cold outside, but we're waiting to get in there. We're kind of standing in line. There's some excitement. You can see the baristas are getting everything ready. And there's a whole group of people waiting in line to get in here. I mean, only in Seattle, right, would we be standing in line for the opening of a coffee shop. And I see people from my neighborhood coming and waiting in line. And so I'm saying hi to them, you know, giving them hugs. I see a friend who works for Young Life, talk for him for a little bit see some friends from my kids' school. It was really neat because the whole community kind of comes out for this. I know a couple of families, even from church, were there later on. 
And then uh, the guy behind me, he kind of shows up by himself. We start talking a little bit. Uh, older guy. And his thing that he loves to do is he roasts coffee and he loves to go to the openings of coffee shops. Like he's just such a coffee aficionado, aficionado that he just loves this. So we're standing in line and we're talking it up. And he turns to me at one point after I said hi to somebody and he goes, how do you know all these people? <laughs> and if you've ever had someone say that to you, like you kind of feel kind of cool, right? Like, oh, you know, I, <laughs> I'm not that big a deal. I, I kind of am. I mean, you know. And I said, you know, this is my neighborhood. Like, these are my friends. Like, these are people that I know in the community. And he goes, oh, that's great. And there's this group of people directly in front of him and I. So, like, we're about 10, 15 people deep in the line. And about five or 10 of the people in front of us, they're all chatting it up. They're all younger, very uh, sharply dressed, I would say. Like, these are very, like, snappy type outfits. And we're just watching folks and kind of people watching. And so this older guy kind of looks at me and he goes, do you know them? And I go, no, I, I don't think I do. And he says, yeah, they, they all seem to really know each other. And then he leans into me and he goes, I think they all go to the same church. <laughs> Imagine a conversation like that happening in ancient Rome. Imagine you're in a city of a million people, not unlike where we are, and there's this group of people that are noticeable, not because they're snappily dressed, but because they're in community together, because they love each other, because something is different about the way that they carry themselves, the way they walk, and the way that they talk. And they're still part of this big city, this bigger thing, but they're different. We've been talking about Paul's letter to the Romans for six months, and it's been a great journey together. And that group of people, much like those snappily dressed folks in front of me in line, that church could never have imagined what God had in store for the transformation of the empire. And every one of us faces some kind of empire. So I want you to think with me for just a minute as we begin our journey together this morning. What is your empire? Your empire is something much bigger than you. It's something that at times conflicts with your values maybe, causes you to think about your character. Your empire is something that if you just try to take it on all by yourself, it'll never work. And it could be the company that you work for. It could be the school that you're a part of, right? You're trying to make good grades and you're learning about different things, but there's this much bigger institution around you and what's your place in it? If you've uh, walked through a season of illness, maybe healthcare is the empire that you're facing right now. How do I navigate this crazy thing? Maybe our current political climate feels like an empire to you. It just feels oppressive. It feels like it's weighing you down. If you want to be bold, church, write down the name of an empire, just on your bulletin, just something that you are thinking about that comes to your mind, that pushes up against you, that if you could, you would change parts of it, but it's just so big. How do you even get started? The New Testament church was in the heart of the empire. It was an absolute miracle, a coup d'etat even, that there was a church in the city of Rome. And so this church over centuries, transformed the Roman culture, and our calling is no less audacious and no less important. To bless and serve our neighbors, to honor what is good in the culture around us, and to seek the shalom, seek the utter transformation of the things around us, the empires around us, that were we to tackle them on our own, we'd never make it. But together, there is a calling for us to live into. And as we finish this series on the book of Romans, we're going to look at three aspects of that calling. They're outlined in your bulletin, and our thesis kind of wraps them all together for us today. God transforms the empire. Put my empire. God will transform 
your empire through encouraging leadership, wisdom, and eternal hope. Encouraging leadership, wisdom, and eternal hope. Those are the three things we're going to talk about today. How is an empire transformed? It starts with leadership. So for time's sake, we're not going to read every single part of this text, but if you want to go in your Bibles with me, turn to Romans 16. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16. It's a lengthy passage, and it's filled with a ton of tongue-twisting names. So I would encourage you to read through this, 1 through 16, on your own during the week. Uh, Have fun with the names. When we all tried to read through it at teaching team this week, none of us could get through all these names, so be encouraged. Even a room full of pastors can't pronounce all these names right. But this is a list of people in the New Testament church who had significant roles. God is using this letter from Paul to kind of give a shout out to them, right? To give a word of encouragement, to lift them up in a way. So I want to highlight just a couple of these names because this was an extraordinary thing. Letters in the New Testament were not this long. Paul's letter to the Romans is about 7,000 words long. A typical New Testament letter was like 100 to 200 words long like a couple of tweets worth. This was a significant undertaking. So it makes sense that this 1 through 16 is a significant addressing of people, leaders, in the church in Rome. Example number one, look at verse three with me. Paul writes, Greet Priscilla and Aquila. Give them a shout out. Give them a high five. Who work with me in Christ Jesus, verse four, and who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. He goes on in verse 5, greet also the church in their house. That's a risk-taking group of people. Priscilla and Aquila, most scholars believe they were a married couple, they were leaders. How were they risk-takers? Why would Paul identify them as risk-takers? Very simply, they had a church in their home. By the way, we started as a house church. We started with a group of risk-takers, some of whom are still here, gathering in a church, gathering in a home, and saying, God is up to something, and we need to be a part of that. There is a community that is being birthed here, and we need to be a part of that church. God has not stopped doing that work. He has not stopped the risk-taking call of his church. If you want to write down a question to think about later on, what is a risk that he is pulling you toward for his sake this week? What is a risk? Because there are risk-taking people in our family history. In the history of the church family, we have always taken risks. Priscilla and Aquila, chief among them. They're risk-takers, Paul says, because they had a church in their home. And the Roman Empire, ooh, they did not like organized things. They did not want things to start to gather together. They did not want people to kind of be in neighborhood groups or HOAs. They were fine with businesses. They were fine with the military. But if you were doing something that was organized around a religion contrary to the Roman religion, you were in big trouble. You could have been thrown in jail. You could have been killed. And so for these folks, the risk of even gathering together was tremendous. And Paul had heard about them. He had heard about their risk-taking leadership. And he takes a moment in the 7,000-word letter, and he gives them a shout-out. And if you're Priscilla and Aquila, how do you feel if a person in leadership calls you out by name and says, you're a risk-taker? That's awesome. If your boss calls you out and says, you're doing great work, that just feels good, right? But if there's something specific to it, if there's more of a, I've seen you taking these risks, I know the church meets in your house, I've seen and heard of this transformation that is taking on around you, it goes to another level, doesn't it? 
So when we talk about encouraging leadership, we're not just talking about sort of the banalities and platitudes that many of us are used to. Great job, pat on the back. We are talking about specific encouragement that Paul's offering to key leaders. Go on down the page a little bit. Verse 5. Greet also the church in your house. Greet my beloved, here comes the first tricky one, Epinetus, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Isn't that interesting? First convert in Asia for Christ. Other translations will have the, the, the name Achaia, which is the ancient word for the region of Greece. So think about this. Paul's writing this to a church in Rome. Rome, right in the middle of Italy, right? We're not entirely sure where he's writing this from, but it wasn't in Rome. He's writing it from somewhere else. If you go between Rome and, let's say, Athens, Greece, that's not a long plane flight. But if you think about it in terms of travel in the ancient world, that was more than a hop, skip, and a jump. That was the furthest outlying reaches of certain parts of the Roman Empire. That was a big deal to be from the outpost of Achaia. And who came to cities like Rome? People came to cities like Rome for jobs, for education, for serving in politics. They came from all over. So a cosmopolitan city of great power and influence with incredible ethnic and cultural diversity. Does this sound familiar, church? And this is what Paul is doing. He's calling out this servant, Epinetus. We don't know what he did. We don't know much of anything about him, but he know, we know he wasn't from Rome. And that gave him incredible cross-cultural capability, did it not? Because if you weren't from Rome and you saw a guy like Epinetus, maybe he had a different skin color. Maybe he spoke with a different accent. Maybe his family's traditions were different. Maybe he dressed differently. It said something to you as you started to come closer and closer to this church as someone from the citizens of Rome going, wait, why would someone from this tribe and this tribe hang out together? Why would God call people of different races and different backgrounds together in one place? Who would do such a thing? We don't naturally gravitate toward that, but in the church, we must. That's why we celebrate what God is doing in our friendship with Paradise Baptist Church. Maybe you guys have had this experience. You tell people about what we're doing with Paradise, how we're worshiping with a historically African-American church, and they lean in and they go, really? That's amazing. They're kind of dumbfounded by it, right? Because we're so used to living in our corners, so used to living with divisions. Epinetus is an example of how the early church said, nope, we're together. The gospel is for all people, all people, rich, poor, black, white, doesn't matter. We all belong in the family of God, and we continue to be a part of that tradition here, and it's more than just a tradition. It is our DNA. Epinetus is an example for us of how we are always called to be a church that reflects the diversity of this community that we are so blessed to be a part of, and that is a dream, and if you want to pray for that dream to come through, you guys, oh my gosh, for us to better and better represent how much amazing stuff God is doing in different cultures in and around the east side. I would love for us to see more of that come to fruition. Now, what's the point of all this? Paul must have been really good buddies with everybody at the church in Rome, right? He must have hung out with them all the time, and they must have been great friends, right? Most scholars believe Paul never actually met anybody at the church in Rome. He went to Rome later in his life, right? Remember, he was arrested. He appealed to Caesar, so they take him up the chain of command to Rome. He goes there, but he goes under house arrest. He doesn't go there as a free man. He goes there as someone who is, as, in his own words, in chains. So he probably didn't have the freedom to go and see this church. How would he have known this? 
How would he have heard about Epinetus and about Priscilla and Aquila and about all these other names? They go on and on in verse 16. Women and men, people who've been slaves, people who are free. How does he know about this? If you go back to the beginning of Romans, you'll hear a clue. Let's listen to this. This is Romans 1, 7 and 8. Very beginning of the letter, introduction, opening comments. Here he goes, starting in verse 7. To all God's beloved in Rome who were called to be saints, all God's beloved. I don't even know you, but I know you're beloved. I have never seen you, but I know you're beloved. He says this, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. I know you by reputation, church. I know you because of what God is doing in your community. I know you because what you are doing in the city of Rome is changing the world. I know you. I know who you are. When someone in leadership says that to you, I know you. I know your passions. I know what you're about. That's a big deal. And Paul is using his leadership to encourage, to lay a blessing upon these people that they will never forget. Years ago, there was uh, a man named Robert Gates. He was the Secretary of Defense for both Presidents George W. Bush and President Obama. And after his time in public office, he went to serve as the president of the second best university in the state of Texas, Texas A&M University. He was the president there for a number of years. They did amazing work under his leadership. And the story is told where there was a big reception, big to-do, lots of uh, academic folks running around. This is like a big sort of like annual event. Come meet the president, come meet the administration, come meet the faculty, all that kind of thing. So picture a big ballroom with tons of people wandering around, cocktails and appetizers, there's big donors, there's the football coach, like all these sort of famous figures in the college. And Secretary Gates is wandering around, he's talking to people, and this one lowly assistant professor of economics, we'll call him Professor Smith, he sees Secretary Gates, and he says to himself, you know, I haven't met the new president yet, do you call him president or secretary? Like, when does the title shift? I don't know. But he goes up to Gates, and he says, hey, just wanted to shake your hand. I'm really glad you're here. And he can't even get those words out of his mouth. When Secretary Gates looks at him and says, oh, I know you. You're Professor Smith. We're really lucky to have you. Knew his name, knew his department, knew enough to say a word of blessing to him. How do you think Professor Smith went to work the next day? He is stoked. He's excited. Church, you can be that voice for someone in your life. There is someone in your life. You can picture them right now. They sit next to you at work, or they ride next to you on the bus, or you see them when you go get your coffee, and you, the human heart knows this. You see them and you go, they're down right now. They just need a word of encouragement. And we say, you know, I, I'm busy, or that's weird. I don't want to encourage somebody I don't know. Or you just kind of watch someone going through something. You go, well, I hope it works out for them. You have the ability, Bethany, to speak that word of encouragement, of affirmation, just something simple like, hey, I see you. I'm so thankful that you're on my team. Hey, I see you. And you're working really hard on your homework. Say this to one of your kids. And I'm so grateful. It's fun to see you grow as a student. You say it to your spouse. Maybe you've had a cold war with your spouse lately, and it's just time to break that down. I see you. I'm so thankful to share my life with you. Simple word of encouragement, friends. It can change the world, and it can change an empire. So that thing you were thinking about a moment ago, that empire, your, your company, 
your school, your family, your neighborhood, how is that empire going to change? It's going to change when you start using your leadership and encouraging people. So let's go be an encouraging church. That's your homework assignment this week, church. Go send a text, go write a note, make a phone call, use Skype, I don't care. Write down somebody's name and pray for them and encourage them this week. Just one person, because our empires need to be changed. And your encouraging leadership is going to make it happen. Can we do that? Say amen. Amen. Say it like you mean it, church. Amen. You can do it. You can encourage somebody this week. It don't cost you nothing. (laughs) Engaging wisdom is the next piece. This is verses 17 through 19 that Heather read for us. So turn with me back to chapter 16. Paul, being a great theologian, he can't just give a bunch of shout outs and say, peace. He has to get in there and say, and there's a little bit more theology for you to study. So here we go. Verse 17, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to keep an eye on those who cause dissensions and offenses in opposition to the teaching you've already learned. Avoid them. For such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. For while your obedience is known to all, so, so that I rejoice over you, I want you to be wise in what is good and guileless in evil. Church, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be wise in what is, and we're supposed to be guileless in what is. That seems pretty simple, right? Can't be that simple, can it? Actually, it can. Paul has taught so many amazing things in the book of Romans, and he knows, he knows this church, he knows this community, he knows there's one thing that's true about them that's true of every single church. There's people in the church. And what do people do to each other? We fight. We get into all kinds of conflicts, big and small. Romans 14 was all about conflicts over diet and the day of the week to worship God. Those are real conflicts. This church was no different. Paul knew that. He knew them by reputation, and he knew their conflicts by reputation. So what's the final closing word he gives to them? He could have said something like all the great quotes from earlier in Romans. He could have said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Don't forget that. He could have said, the gift is not like the trespass. Don't forget that. He could have said, God works all things for good for those who love him. Don't forget that. Instead, what he offers them is a rephrasing of one of the most important lessons that he teaches throughout the book of Romans. And it's very simple. Love your neighbor. Can you say that with me? Love your neighbor. Now, there's a challenge in here, but the the real heart of it is love your neighbor. Go back to uh, Romans chapter 13 with me. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. This is kind of the apex of this final part of the book of Romans, and it's coming into play in our text today. Paul writes this, owe no one anything except to what? Love one another. Say it with me, church. Love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, in this law, in this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. A diverse church, a divided church, yes, all true. Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians didn't know what to do with each other. What's Paul's encouragement to them? Love one another. Love one another. Don't listen when people try to pull you off the map with their new theological ideas and they're pulling you this way. Don't listen when, you kinda, when someone's trying to dilute the gospel. Don't listen you get distracted. What he says to them, what he says to us is, if you want to know the benchmark, if you want to know your measuring stick for how you're doing in your faith, it goes back to how you're doing at loving your neighbor. 
love God and love neighbor. And that is how an empire is going to be transformed. In Rome, loving your neighbor, probably not much of a value there. You may know that Rome was a city, is a city that's built up on seven different hills right in the middle of the country of Italy. And in one of these hills outside the city of Rome, there was kind of this garbage dump. But it wasn't a garbage dump just for garbage. It was a dump for people that the empire had designated as human garbage. That included the sick, the dying, widows, orphans, the disabled. There was a hill where you were supposed to take your human refuse. That was what the empire expected of you. If you were a citizen of Rome, the way to deal with your neighbors, the way to deal with people that didn't fit, that broke the mold, that weren't, that weren't right for whatever reason, they go to the hill. And the church could not abide that. Because the church knows, and the church has never wavered from this, that people are made in the image of God. They're valuable. You have never met an ordinary person. C.S. Lewis said that. You've met someone that looks like God. And every person has value. And the church would look at that hill. I can just picture people from the Roman church looking at that hill and going, oh, man. Like, I can't even look at that, but I've got to do something about that. People don't belong on the hill. And so ancient forms of modern institutions that have changed the world started with this early church. Where do you think we got hospitals from? Where do you think we got orphanages from? Where do you think hospice care and giving dignity to those who are dying, where do you think that came from? Those weren't nice ideas. Those were started by Christians in cities like Rome where there were hills that were just an abomination. And they said, no, we're going to live differently. We're going to love our neighbors. Your calling, my calling is no different. It may not be that radical. It may not feel like we're rescuing people literally from a trash heap. But don't we have the sick? In our streets? Don't we have those who are so broken, whose hearts are broken, whose bodies are broken, living in poverty every day? And don't we have something to say to them, church? You have value. You belong. How can we care for you? How can we partner? How can we make sure that kids and families, that there is no more hunger and there is no more poverty? That is our calling against the empire that we live in, is it not? The empire of individualism, the empire of, oh, just let them go figure it out. Yeah, how's that going for us? We have a calling, church. In your empire, in that thing that you wrote down earlier, your company, your school, your family, your neighborhood, whatever it is, what's your version of loving your neighbor? Because you got a neighbor you got to go love. And they're going to help transform that empire somehow. How do you think the people in Rome, far from God, how do you think they felt when they saw Christians going out to the hill, pulling people out of that mess and saying, come on to my house. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you well. I'm going to take care of you. How do you think they felt? They felt inspired to go be different. They might have felt a little guilt. Well, you know, sometimes that's okay. They wanted to do something different. That is our calling. We have a similar responsibility, and you know to whom God is calling you to be responsible in loving your neighbor. How are we doing at that church? You want to measure how you're doing spiritually, how your heart is, how are we doing at loving our neighbors? It's there, and we can do it. And the church in Rome did it, and oh my gosh, they had no idea how amazing the transformation of that empire was going to be. 
So that's the second part. Now let's talk about our final part, everlasting hope. This is where it gets really, really good. Verse 20, this will be on the screen for us, the final verse, great promise from the Lord. Paul writes this, the God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. What a great dichotomy there. The God of peace, bam, he'll shortly crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The power to crush, the power to break, that's a pretty one-way power, right? In the Lord of the Rings, the, uh, the ultimate bad guy, Saruman, is described at one point as uh, this force of evil, force of darkness, trying to take over all of Middle-earth. And then one of the characters has this amazing observation. <laughs> I love this. He says, Saruman has no power to create. He can only corrupt. He can only tear down. He can't make new things. The power to crush, that's nothing. Anybody can do that. The power to break is nothing compared to the power to restore. And that's what God offers us in Jesus Christ. That, that's the gospel that changed the Roman Empire. Yeah, it's easy to go walking into some country and conquer it and do all these other things and to throw, throw people aside like refuse. That ain't hard. What's truly powerful is to restore, is to experience resurrection. And that is the good news that we will celebrate on Easter. And as we walk toward Easter together as a church, we're going to remind ourselves of that. Like, yeah, it's easy to crush. It's easy to break. God has promised that he will break Satan into pieces. He is not going to win. Because God's power to resurrect is greater. It must be greater. So whatever it is that you're facing in your empire, it cannot be greater than the power of God to bring life out of dead places. And God is going to crush the parts of that empire that you're facing that he knows need to be crushed. It may not happen the way that you think it's going to happen. It may not happen in the time that you think it's going to happen. But turn to your neighbor and say, it's just going to get crushed. It's just going to get crushed. Whatever it is, whatever that empire, that challenge is that you're facing, the good news of the gospel is Jesus has already shown his resurrection power is way bigger way better, way more powerful. And don't you think the people in Rome took this to heart when they rescued the sick and the brokenhearted, when they said, we're going to honor the parts of our culture that we can honor, but we are going to stand firm in our commitment to Jesus. If you're facing something hopeless at work, if you're sitting there going like, dude, you're talking about changing an empire. I work for a multinational company. We are spread all over the planet. There is no way that I can engineer some kind of change in this environment. It's too big. It's too challenging. What I would say to you is, who said anything about you doing it? Who said anything about you doing it? This is the resurrection power of Jesus. Of Jesus. A homeless carpenter's son. Why would he have any power at all? He had the power to change the world. And so do you, church. So do we. Because we got a great team. And we're going to encourage the leaders around us. And we've got people who we're called to serve behind, serve beside. And our leadership is going to look different. Rome was not built in a day, and it was not transformed in a moment. And our culture, our empire is calling for us to be a part of that transformation. 
So as you have thought about that, as you've tried to picture what your version of the empire looks like today, know this, that the power to crush that empire, that's one thing. But the power to find transformation and renewal in it is God's calling for us. So whatever it looks like for you, know that God goes with you and he has gone before you. He has already laid a path out for you. And your calling, our calling, is just to step into it with courage. About 20 years ago now, I started college, and it felt like an absolute miracle. I felt like my first year walking around college, like, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not actually that good of a student. Like, I don't know how I got in. And I came to college excited about it, but I also came to college very new in my faith. And when I went to the University of Texas, it was probably one of the first experiences I had with a very secular culture, a culture that was deeply disinterested in the things of faith. Keep your faith to yourself, all that. And so as a new Christian, I was kind of like, why is that? Are, this is the best news. Like, the gospel is the greatest thing I've ever heard. Why would we not want to tell people about it? And the more I matured in my faith, the more I grew, the more I started to kind of see ways to get at that. But I remember really wanting to see my college campus transformed by the power of Jesus. And I didn't know how to do it. I'm this enthusiastic 19-year-old wearing flip-flops and a ratty t-shirt. Like, what do I know? And I was kind of an odd duck as a college student in that I actually studied some, most days, I went to a library right at the heart of campus. And this library was in the main building, and some of you have seen the documentary of the the tower there. And I was just, I remember walking into this building day after day and thinking to myself, like, this is great, but like, what, what could we do? What could we do to change this? This was my version of the empire, right? Like, how do I How do we get at this? How do we get the gospel out into the lives of professors and students? And how do we seek renewal for our city? Like, how is this possible? And I would walk into this building and go study at the library. And it was a little while before I noticed this. And I'll show you two pictures of this. You walk into this building, and it's kind of the heart of campus. It's where the president's office is and everything like that. And I would go in, and you would see, and I finally noticed this after a couple weeks, there was an inscription written above the door to this building. And can we go to the next one? It said this, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. The words of Jesus were written in the stone of the building that I was walking into every single day. He had already claimed this empire. It wasn't mine to try to figure it out or try to solve like a Rubik's cube. He was already there. So that's my encouragement to you, church. As we finish out our time together and study today, as we get ready to come to the table, Jesus is already there. Whatever the empire is you've been thinking of, changing your company, changing your neighborhood, changing an under-resourced school, he's already there. And all you gotta do is join him in what he's doing. He invites us, he beckons us to take part in. That's what Paul's saying to the church in Rome. Yeah, it seems like an impossible task, but I'm already there. My words are there. My presence is there. It is written that he will never leave you or forsake you. So go with courage into that empire challenge in the week ahead. And as you do so, come with me now to the table so we can be fed and nourished and ready for what's ahead. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, Thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for those faithful, faithful people who came to Rome to help start a church and they ended up changing everything. The whole culture was transformed, God. What an amazing thing. And for each of us, there's a different 
point of concern around our culture or a challenge, would you just hear us as we hold that out to you, that place where we feel like the empire is just pushing down on us? And as we hold out those places to you, maybe it's with our kids, maybe it's with neighbors or coworkers, it just feels too big for us. Would you remind us now as we come to receive this bread and this juice that you are the God who takes very simple, very ordinary people and ordinary things and does the extraordinary. Thank you that Jesus shared this meal with his friends. So do we now share this time. Holy Spirit, set apart this time as special in your sight. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.